It might be rough for me getting started after that. For those that don't know, um, Barry Chaplin's is uh, where I'm privileged to minister now. And that's in large part to the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of someone like Harold Albert who started Barry Chaplin's. So maybe it's meaningful. Maybe it's part of God's sovereign work that I'd be up here in front of you today. I don't know. <laughs> well, good morning. Good morning. Well, as I, as I introduced myself, uh, I actually didn't give you my name. I'm John Klobuchar. I'm one of the deacons here, but I also serve full-time as of November as a chaplain with Barry Chaplin's. And, and real quick snippet, Barry Chaplin's. We are actually contracted by the county. We're favored in this amazing opportunity to uh, be the chaplains over the three uh, there's three facilities here in Contra Costa County, Mar- uh, Martinez Detention Facility in Martinez, <clears throat> West County Detention Facility in um, Richmond, and actually Marsh Creek right over here in Clayton is a facility. And we are the, the, the chaplains as an organization, as a gospel organization, that get to be inside there, um, privileged to be there <clears throat> as gospel ministers. Let me get a sip of water here. Now, before I uh, attempt, or attended, not attempted, I actually finished seminary. Uh, I did it, yes. And now that I'm in full-time ministry, actually, I spent the first 30 years of my, I almost said life, it's my adult life, that would have been hard to join the Coast Guard from birth. But I spent the first 30 years of my adult life in the Coast Guard. Um, and in those 30 years, I, I experienced a lot of leaders I experienced a lot of leadership. I experienced a lot of really good leadership. I experienced a lot of really bad leadership. I myself served as a leader for a while, and fortunately no one here that was here that worked for me, I don't think, so we don't have to go what kind of leader I was. But one thing that was really clear to me is, is that, you know, and this doesn't matter if you're in the military or not, the quality of leadership is critical to, um, uh, to those that are being led. Um, the quality of leadership in, in the military, we say it's critical to morale and welfare. Anyone serve in the military and heard those terms, you know those terms, morale and welfare. And those things, right, the welfare of those that are, are, are being, uh, being led is critical to the performance of the mission, the job, whatever it is you have to do. And it is the leader's attitude largely that determines the attitude of those that they lead. Here it is often in the leader's attitude and the involvement in the harder missions and assignments, the things that no one wants to do, the things that no one wants to tell others to do. It's that attitude from the leader that will determine how um, those who perform those difficult missions will, one, perform them and their attitudes in it. And the leader's willingness to abide by the rules. How does a leader feel about the rules? How does a leader feel about being an example to others? Um... Because if they don't care about those things, if they're not willing to do the same thing, why should I? Today we will consider Paul's exerting his leadership, which he's doing, uh, on the Corinthian church and the implications that it has for us today. And here it's at the end of chapter 4 in 1 Corinthians. If you can get your tablets out, your Bibles, however you're going to read these verses, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21. And as you get there, please, let's, let's stand on our feet as we read God's word. Paul writes, I do not write these things 
to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I send you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in the church. Some are arrogant, and though I was not coming to you, as though, I'm sorry, as though I was not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a love in a spirit of gentleness? Pray with me. God, we thank you for what your word reveals to us. We thank you that um, you call leaders. You call people to lead, to be in, uh, look over your church. We thank you that here at Clayton Valley Church, we have such leaders that I believe emulate what we're going to discuss today. And I pray as we consider what Paul talks about here today, that we take it in. Take it in that we are led in a way that God desires. We are all called in a way you desire, but you do call some to lead. And help us to reflect on that for your sake. Amen. Please have a seat. This is my first time using slides, so I'm two behind. But one key component, I already went too far, one key component to leadership is wisdom. And drawing from my experience in Coast Guard again, that's, this is what I know. <laughs> there were kind of minimum standards, or there were minimum standards. These are the actual standards for advancing enlisted ranks. And having spent my entire Coast Guard career enlisted, I was prim- primarily supervised by enlisted people, and myself became an enlisted leader. And there were three things that were necessary for people to advance, promote as an enlisted person. First, you need to pass the exam for the next higher grade. In other words, does the person know his or her job? Secondly, you need enough time in your current rank and time in service. In other words, does this person have enough experience and maturity for this position? Thirdly, you need the recommendation of your command. And I would call this one the wisdom test. Can they lead using wisdom? And why is wisdom needed? Because absolutely nothing ever goes as planned. And as you may guess, this last requirement is really the most kind of controversial. Decision whether or not to recommend someone to be in that next rank, it's, it's hard to determine. It's hard to tell someone, yeah, you're not ready. I'm not going to recommend you. And often, this led to people in leadership positions who weren't really ready and may lack the maturity and wisdom. But as we turn and consider the church, as we can turn and consider the church that needs to be led, how important is this for the church's body to have those that are wise leading us? Today we will look at Paul's leadership in this passage we just read and see that the church needs wise leaders who are fatherly. One of the first questions I asked when I read this text is, is how is Paul not shaming the Corinthians? Um, He writes, he says, I didn't write this to shame you, but to admonish you. It sure seems like when I read through this, at least in my, without really thinking about it, I'm like, well, Paul is He's shaming these people. He's consistently painted the Corinthians church's response to the gospel in a negative light. They've rejected the wisdom of the cross in favor of the wisdom of the world. 
And in the preceding verses that Pastor Chris preached on last week, Paul was essentially said that the cross appears to have no influence on you like it has had on us as apostles. That they most likely, they see Paul in a shameful, shameful manner and because of the, how the gospel has caused him to suffer real loss. That was shameful for them. I, we can't associate with someone that's, that, that's gone through all this, that's essentially become a servant. How can we identify with that? That's shameful. That's, this is where the Corinthians were. They were measuring their affinity and will, willingness to follow others by the earthly wisdom. They were seeking status. As one writer put it, the Corinthian culture was one of status-hungry people. It does, probably doesn't sound too distant from the things we experience. Yet Paul's sincere intent here is to seek corrective correction by shaming. The cultural context of those receiving Paul's letter is one where shaming was like really shunning someone for the loss of their status that they strive for. And for the Corinthian culture, status was the primary driver of who you associated with. And in the context of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, what leader you found your identity in. And once again, Paul, in his cross-formed way, was not the status they wanted to be known by. If anyone grew up in the East, or even the southern United States, you probably understand these implications of shaming. And this is why Paul is distinguishing his admonishment from shame. Paul desires the gospel not only to be understood, but to be formative in their lives. Because the Corinthian church had favored a formation by the surrounding culture, because this was seemingly more honorable than a life formed by the cross. In fact, the gospel, and in particular the cross, is the source of shame for the Corinthian church and why Paul needed to reestablish it as the power of God. Their obsession with the wisdom of the age, wisdom of the age was pitted against them, or pitted against Paul because his very life was formed by the cross. And because of this, Paul had a real, sincere, fatherly desire to admonish them. When they, were, they are blind to something he knows they need, yet they are demonstrating rejection by their immaturity and fleshliness, he, he, and will continue, he has and will continue to address. Is this not often the plight of the parents? At least I think it is. The child who you have parental responsibility for, and more importantly, a parental bond that ought, that ought to keep us alert to dangers. Our, our children are just, they know how to get into trouble. <laughs> I, um, silence for parents out there. What does silence mean? Yeah, yeah, something's going, something's getting stuck in the light socket. Something's, a Sharpie might be used as a drawing instrument on the couch. Uh, I, but, but more sublime and heartbreaking for many is seeing the devastating choices by older children. I started working as a jail chaplain in November of last year, and I've been involved in jail and prison ministry since 2003. And just this Friday, Chaplain Lance and I, we were, we were actually discussing engaging with family of those who are incarcerated. We actually have, we have boundaries over how we engage with people. There's just, it's just the nature of dealing with people who are incarcerated, who we can and can't talk to. But, but occasionally we do get phone calls from parents, from grandparents, about their adult children who are incarcerated. Now, make it clear here, I I, I feel called. This is where I'm called. I I feel I'm called to the jail and prison ministry. I have a heart for it. I have a heart for those I minister to, but that really pales in comparison to a mother or father and their love for their child who's gone astray. 
I can never fully relate to the level of their distress over the fate of their children. There's a unique heartbreak that only a parent can understand over a child who has ignored the loving influence of a family in favor of things that lead to incarceration. I think this is the sense that Paul's emotional father appeal is. The Corinthians are in practice, they're denying the cross in favor of the world, and this rightly gives Paul grounds to be distraught as a spiritual parent. As we'll explore in coming weeks, their conduct is largely unaffected by the gospel. The cross is not forming their thinking and their life. The very gospel Paul preached them, and by which he now considers them his spiritual children and measured by their fruit, it's just been forgotten. It's been ignored. An important distinction here is that when Paul refers to countless guides and fathers, and, um, they are not the same as the, those who are having negative influence, and we'll discuss that in a moment. The fathers Paul mentions are likely those that he's already mentioned, such as Apollos. But Paul is rightly asserting that their conduct requires him to plead, that his authority as their spiritual father, and that his heartfelt need is to admonish and not shame them. His concern, much like Jesus' concern for his sheep, is greater than the hired help, is out of a unique parental love. And once again, shame was a real thing imposed on people to shun them from public honor. It was to be avoided like the plague because it was a form of death to those where status was everything. Wrong button. Hebrews 12b, yet as we, uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews 12b, yet as the the 12th uh, chapter of Hebrews tells us, it was for the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross, despising its shame. Why? That we have no need to experience ultimate shame of of a life lived in rebellion against God. Jesus endured public shame on our behalf that we might receive the honor of being God's children. They didn't get it. We need, do we get it? And this is the foundation of Paul's admonishment. They don't need to be shamed, but they do need admonishment to return to the gospel Paul preached. This is fatherly care. I care enough to admonish you. To love like a father often means tough, corrective conversation. To love a brother or sister in Christ often means a willingness to say hard things and accept hard things. To be clear, not all who are driven to admonish are motivated by love. But Paul's example and motivation is admonishing those he considers his children and is consistent and it's out of love. In Galatians, Paul actually uses the imagery. Uh Uh-oh, there we go. I'm getting used to this. So in Galatians 4, Paul writes, but it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And not only when I am present with you, my children with whom I, have, I am again in labor until Christ is forming you. But I could wish to present with you now, I'll be present with you now, and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul, using parental language again, here, you know, as a mother in labor pains, for his, those he loves, those, his children, Galatians, same tone in this letter, reaching out to those who, who don't get the gospel. And, and Paul has a parental passion, a parental love for those that he has ministered to, to those he has preached the gospel to, to those who he has fathered spiritually. And Paul is an apostle. He founded and guided the Corinthian church in his formation. 
and has a deep, sincere care for this church. And he sees as, their, as his spiritual children. Paul consistently has a heart for those he has evangelized, those he has personally led to follow Christ. And church family, this is the foundation to the health of our church, any church. Those called to leadership will have a fatherly care that we then submit under. This is never merely out of duty, but like a parent who is always mindful for the welfare of his or her children, church leaders who are like Paul will have a heart for those under their pastoral care. Now, I didn't survey any of the pastors on this, but the first thing I just want to say is I, they don't want to be called father. Not many, not many former Catholics here. Or Catholics. I'm sorry. But one thing I do think needs to be said is, is that um, with Chris, with Andrew, with Eric, these are men who have a fatherly concern for Christ Church that assembles here at Clayton Valley Church. Now back to Paul and his attitude, his leading. All this must be understood in light of Paul's own understanding and response to the gospel in his own life. This leads us to the second need of the church. That the church needs wise leaders who are fatherly and who are formed by the cross. And, and maybe your first instinct when reading 1 Corinthians is to think that Paul is like reversing everything he has just said about them finding their identity in a specific apostle. Don't be of Apollos, don't even be of me. But this is different. Paul, Paul's specific exhortation to be imitators of me is in line with what, what we just talked about. Paul, as their spiritual father, wants them to take their cue from him. To be clear, Paul is not establishing a Pauline group. And, and later in chapter 16, he will express how he's encouraged Apollos to visit them. So this is never, never, never about Paul pitting himself against the other leaders. What this is about is the Corinthians need confrontation. They need a course correction. They need a reminder of the gospel, the message of the cross, which is the power of God demonstrated in transformed lives. The rejection of Paul was a rejection of the heart of his message and the cross-formed life. It was foolishness to them. Paul spent 18 months with the Corinthian church, so they know his manner of life. They know he did not merely talk about the cross, but he demonstrated had his message where he determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, displayed power to them by how he lived. What did this look like? We really need to turn back a few verses to what many call the catalog of Paul's sufferings to see. Paul's life formed by the cross was first contentment at losing earthly things and suffer for Christ. Secondly, is a determination to bless others even when cursed. Thirdly, it was a commitment to endure when persecuted. And fourthly, it was a willingness not to respond in kind even when slandered. That's a hard one for me. When I was stationed in Los Angeles, we had the honor to participate in multiple Armed Forces Day parades in Torrance, California. An honored guest at every one of these events was a man named Louis Zamperini. Does that ring, name ring a bell with anyone? Anyone, ever, anyone read the book 
Unbroken, or see the movie? Well, both his biography and movie Unbroken detail Louis Zamperini's life. I do have a picture of him. There he is. Particularly as a prisoner of war in World War II. He was a bombardier on a B-24 that crashed in the Pacific. He actually survived 47 days at sea, only to be captured and tortured for years as a prisoner of war. He was transferred to several camps, and his last camp is where he would uh, endure the brunt of much of the harassment and brutal torture from a Japanese guard named Mutz. His nickname was The Bird. (laughs) It It wasn't a kind nickname. The Bird was listed among Douglas MacArthur's 40, 40 greatest war criminals. One famous incident portrayed in the movie is when bird, the Bird punished Louis by having every single person in the camp punch him in the face. And now the reason Zamperini, he received so much attention is that the prison guards learned he was actually, he had been an American Olympian in, before World War II. And one of the punishments they would do with him is they would force him to run in a race despite his frail condition. Um, he was actually distraught, dismayed at just how badly broken his body had become. And, and when he tried to, he tried to run, it, it, you know, his body failed him. <laughs> if, you, if you read the book, if you saw the movie, and there was one incident, though, that despite his brokenness, he, he, had, he actually won a race. But as an award, he got clubbed in the head for winning. Zamperini was released in 19, uh, September 1945. Uh, his wartime experiences haunted him for years. His years of malnourishment and torture left him unable to resume his career as a runner. And he became dependent on alcohol to stave off nightmares and flashback. Zamperini's post-traumatic stress was understandably intense as he endured and witnessed some of the worst horrors of war and human cruelty, human cruelty on him. Yet his life was just about to begin. His real life was about to begin. In 1949, he at the urging of his wife, who had come to Christ earlier, uh, was talked into going to Billy Graham crusade. As I understand it, he went to one, got mad and left, but he went back. He went back, and he had a radical conversion, a radical conversion that, where he saw the cross, and all the, all the cross could mean for him, forgiveness, restore, restoration. He could begin someone that was could forgiven and then forgive. And what did that mean for him as someone who suffered at the hands of human cruelty? In 1950, Zamperini intentionally returned to Japan for the first time since his liberation. He actually went there to address the Japanese war criminals that were held in prison in Tokyo for what they've done. While there, he shook hands. He embraced many of his old camp guards and forgave them by his own choice. Now the bird avoided capture. Zamperini actually wrote him a letter forgiving him. And at the 1998, when he went to be a torchbearer at the 1998 Winter Olympics in Nagano, he actually tried to seek him out, but refused, uh, the bird actually refused to see him. But Zamperini was still willing to forgive him. Louis Zamperini exemplifies a crossed form life. When he understood the forgiveness, these are, these are the ones you go over and you're like, that's not going to choke me up. When he understood the forgiveness by the way of the cross, he did with the Corinthians. And if we are honest, what we may see as foolish in the wisdom of the world 
He took the initiative to reconcile and forgive those who tortured him with no expectation in return. All at once, the memories of abuse and torture by others was turned into a life marked by a passion to forgive and reconcile. He was free to let go of the pain and any desire to see his tormentors pay because Louis knew his debt was paid. This is Paul's example. This is the way in in which Christ teaches everywhere and what he has instilled in Timothy, who he has the same affection for as my beloved and faithful child Lord. In fact, when Paul says that Timothy will remind you, the sense seems to indicate that it's Timothy's presence and manner of life that will represent the cross-formed life of Paul himself to the Corinthians. And yet, in the gospel, loss becomes gain, leading to our third point. The church needs wise leaders who act fatherly, who are formed by the cross, and who live by the already not yet of God's kingdom. When we consider the physical death of Jesus on the cross and the body resurrection of Jesus from the grave, the implications to our life as kingdom citizens are now increased, never, never reduced. This is why Paul has already told the Corinthians, do you not know you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? Our bodies are sacred, which begs the question, what do we do with something that's sacred? This sacred space was created by the cross of Jesus Christ and signifies that the kingdom of God is here now. Gordon Fee puts it like this. I have the quote. I'm not sure. It might be kind of small for people to read, but I will read it. The kingdom that has already been inaugurated by the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit is characterized by the power of his Spirit. Here's a line of ultimate demarcation between their, the Corinthians, view of spirituality and Paul's. They were living in the spirit as though the future had dawned in some measure of fullness. Hence, they were above the weaknesses that characterized Paul's life and ministry. Paul, in contrast, lived in all kinds of weaknesses that characterized his Lord. But through those weaknesses, the power and grace of God were still at work in the world, bringing people to salvation that put them currently in God's kingdom and assured them that the same kingdom as their inheritance... For Paul, living in the already not yet meant, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The boasting by some against Paul's intentions to visit and continue his exhortation in person is grounded in their arrogance And they somehow had arrived spiritually, had no need for Paul's gospel, the true gospel, the example of Paul, where the power of God by the Spirit of God has led him to a life of sacrifice for and because of the gospel of God. Here, once again, the cross cross of God is foolishness to those who favor being empowered to live for this world because being Christ-like, becoming formed by the cross, implies giving up too much. What they need is no different than what we need. The Holy Spirit is given not to boast in earthly status or in men, but to know the gospel that saves and transforms by the way of the cross. The true power of the Spirit is the power of God that gives us new life in Christ. Yet the cross-formed life, it's not always contagious. It it pushes against so many values that we hold there. In the same vein that our surrounding culture can be an easy distraction, 
Actually, one historian said that Corinth is, is, is like the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all together at once. So much to live for and tempt you and keep you from denying the cross rather than taking it up. If we go back to the catalog of Paul's sufferings, his leadership example has consistently demonstrated that any life formed by the cross that lives in the already not yet kingdom might mean, one, losing the security in earthly things by suffering for Christ. It may mean forfeiting our right to pay others back to bless instead. Absorbing wrongs and simply enduring persecution. And it may mean withholding the right to defend our honor even when slandered. This is why Paul is reestablishing the very foundation we looked at in these opening chapters. That, that is Jesus Christ, him crucified, the only foundation gained by grace alone. That's it. That's what Paul wants them to know. It's simple, but its implications are profound and large and easily, with everything around us, ignored. Realize we have, we have arrived, but not yet. The power of this world is shifting. And while we don't live in a strict honor-shame culture ourselves, and this was, this was the manner what they looked, this ought to resonate with us today. Making someone feel like they are wrong at all now is seen as being shamed or shunned. Sometimes we need to be admonished. Lastly, wise leadership... The church needs wise leadership who act fatherly, formed by the cross, who live in the already at. And fourthly, who live for reconciliation. In discussing this verse with Andrew on Friday, he asked, do you think Paul was serious with the choice here? And I think what he was implying, was he really serious about bringing uh, a stick? Was he really serious about, uh, and I think what, what he's saying here is, the tone he has now, he would like, he would, he would like to come with them. He would, like to, um, he would like to be in their presence with them. Um, he would not want, his desire is to reconcile, not bring us, uh, come at, him sharply, at them sharply. And quite simply, yes, it, but it does not change the need for admonishment because the admonishment Paul began to discuss in verse 14 is a form of love. Paul is giving them a choice. One of the most distinct memories I have as a young parent, I didn't bounce this off you, John Michael, but I'm about to talk about you. One of the distinct memories I have as a young parent, we were in the parking lot at the jungle in Concord. Yes, it's been around that long. He was about five years old um, and well aware of the dangers of running a parking lot. Isn't this one of, is this parents, one of their nightmares? The parking lot. I think he was a little amped up about playing his playing time in the jungle or something. I, I, I don't remember. Cindy remembers this well. A lot of this is, I, I credit to her, her memory, not mine. You can kind of guess what's going to happen, right? John darts out in the parking lot. Now, I was younger, a little more agile. Proceed to reach, leap out, save him. I think it was, it was probably a lot more awkward than it may, I may, I may seem like I was gracefully reaching out and pulling him back. I, I honestly don't remember, but, but what we both do remember is it was when one motion I grabbed him, pulled him, swatted him. (laughs) 
I don't really remember all that again since Cindy said this is how it went down. So I trust her. What I do remember is the panic created by imagining what would have happened if I had not grabbed him. And why this is a, why this is a distinct in our memories is my wife remembers I, I rarely used form corporal punishment. I just, I just didn't. It, it actually, it pained me. In this case, what I do remember was my emotion at the moment brought about by an instinct, instinctive action that both saves my son's life and applied a consequence in the same moment. And this is Paul's genuinely heartfelt appeal to the Corinthian church that he is determined to reconcile them as his spiritual children, in love, either way. How they receive his written admonishment will determine how Paul was going to deal with them, by way of forceful confrontation, or more gently, though firmly, either way represents the love Paul has for them. Yet, though Paul wants reconciliation with them as their spiritual father, and they as his spiritual children, Paul's underlying motivation and foundation is they get the gospel and the message of the cross that they might be formed by it. And this leads us to consider two important application points. First, humble yourself to be loved through admonishment. This is something we need to mull over, and as I have these last few weeks thinking about this, and I need to remember as much as anyone, back to my Coast Guard days, just full of stories, I guess. The, the, I remember this is like 35 years ago, and I, I, I don't even remember the full story about my son, but I remember this. Part of, part of why I need this reminder is I remember the lowest mark that I've ever received in my Coast Guard career, and I think, I'm guessing this is about 35 years ago, 35 years ago was marked down for how I took criticism. Go figure. Yet to be admonished by wise leadership, even wise brothers and sisters in Christ, is vital to participating in the ministry of reconciliation. It's got to be there. Salvation is not a static because it involves our transformation. Transformation involves moving from one manner of life to another. In, in, in uh, Romans 12, Paul exhorts us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is and which is good and acceptable and perfect. And we can't change our thinking until we expose what it is we think and believe. And, we, and what we think and believe is evident in what we do. And this is all too often take someone's loving admonishment, as Paul is doing here, to expose our willingness to accept that loving admonishment. We have to accept it. We have to be willing to accept it. Otherwise, we're going to continue, like the Corinthians are, content with where we're at and not be formed by the cross. And one underlying assumption here, and what I addressed earlier, is we are blessed to have wise leadership here at CBC. Amen? Their leadership through a difficult last couple of years is a testament to their willingness to remain humble themselves and be formed by the cross. I say this as one who is willingly serving here, and I will continue to humble myself to be loved, even if it means admonishment, because I recognize I'm not called there, they are. And we need to recognize that too. But my leadership experience is enough to know that it is hard enough to lead in the relatively calm, let alone when you have to navigate the ever-ending issues of the last couple of years of the pandemic. And for that, we ought to humble ourselves enough to be loved by admonishment. Secondly, 
Humble yourself to be loved enough to be shaped by the cross. This application point is for everyone, and this is what will lead us into observing communion. Perhaps you have never allowed yourself to be initially shaped by the cross. The message of the cross is the ultimate life changer. In the world's eyes, it may seem foolish, but for those that are saved by it, the good news of Jesus is that at at Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, that is the good news and the power of God for salvation for those that choose to believe. Jesus himself said, it is the greatest form of love that someone gives his life for his friend. And it is on the cross where God was loving us enough that he took on himself the entirety of the consequences of sin. It is at the cross the love of God and the justice of God comes together to undo the power and penalty of our rebellion against God that we might be his children. He might be our father. Forgiven and gifted with the Holy Spirit that we might be born again and truly live and, yes, be formed by that very same cross. And if anyone's here considering this, thinking about it, doesn't understand it, oh, we'd be happy to talk to you about it. If you have repented and follow Christ and you've grown weary of hearing the cross, you need to hear it again. I admit I found myself trying to reduce its use from my message today. It's like I'm writing cross a lot. But for Paul, it was never out of his mind because it loomed large, larger for him every day, causing his life to be formed by it. If you've not already done so, um, please get the elements if, if you haven't got them from the table. If, if the ushers could help people who can't make it out there, maybe you raise your hand and an usher can bring you the elements. And while you're retrieving the elements and we prepare for communion, we remind us that observing this ordinance, this is for those who have first repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and have followed him in obedience and baptism. A resounding theme in redemptive history, when you read your Old Testament, it's consistent over and over again, is God pleading with his people over and over again, reminding them of who he is and who they are. In Psalm 81, 8 through 14, it says, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people will not listen to my voice. Israel will not submit to me. So I gave them over to a stubborn hearts to follow their own, their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel should walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. It hasn't changed. God still wants us to remember his acts of deliverance. But instead of being handed over to the consequences of our stubborn hearts, he suffered the consequences of the cross, dying on our behalf, that he might guarantee our deliverance from the consequences we create. We need to remember 
because we cannot be formed by something we do not consider we need. Thus, in remembering the cross, we participate in remembering, knowing our need of the cross, that it should grow bigger in our minds as it reminds us of the utter depths of God's love, despite our tendency of rebellion and idolatry. This is partaking of communion in a worthy manner. In recognition of our equal standing before God that finds us all in need of the cross of Christ. This is why we need to remember together. Please open the, uh, the bread side here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from 1 Corinthians 11. As I open my Bible, I'm going to give a little bit of a moment of silence. And what I'd like us to consider has the cross, have you grown weary of hearing the cross? Do you need to hear it again? I do. Think on that while we prepare to partake of the bread. In the same letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, starting at verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. God, I pray that as we partake, as we remember, as we consider the cross, the cross that ought never get old in our thinking, it ought to be always before us. Help us not to grow weary of it. Help us not to think of it as foolish. Help, it, help us to realize it's the place where we first go and always go. It's the place where we find forgiveness, where we find the place where we need to be formed for your sake. Amen. Let's partake together. How amazing is it that we serve a God that is a promise keeper. That in the cross, God has given us a promise he ensured can't be broken. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, we read about the greatest covenant God has enacted. That when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. As we read earlier from Hebrews 12, this covenant was cut by Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God so that we don't need to experience shame that shuns us, but admonishment that forms us because God guarantees it. God guarantees it because we serve King Jesus, who is exalted to the right hand of the Father, and his kingship and his kingdom are inaugurated as already not yet because he was coronated by death, even death on a cross. And as a result, we have the guarantee of God's greatest promise of redemption brought about by the precious blood of Jesus. Paul continues in verse 25. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This 
is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. God, as we drink this cup, consider the promise keeper you are, the promise keeper that you guaranteed by yourself in, in Jesus Christ. You took on all that was needed for us to be reconciled to you, to keep your promise, to give us the guarantee, the guaranteed hope by you and you alone. Help us never to forget that. Help us again never to grow weary of hearing it and help it to form, form us each and every day as the cross looms larger and larger in our thinking for your sake. Amen. Let's partake together. Pray with me. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul. I thank you for the example Apostle Paul was. But Paul would go on to say in this same book, yes, follow my example, but follow it as I follow his, Christ. Paul's example was never, ever one that was not cross-formed. And I pray, God, as we think about this today, we thank you for leaders like Paul, leaders like Paul that well, we're, we're honored to serve under today, God. May we all, as a church family, God, be willing to submit to one another, God. Be humble enough to be admonished, humble enough to be loved by the cross in all we do for your sake. Amen.